0: How is digital literacy related to social justice? Today on the show, I have the honor of sitting down with a leading thinker in education, Dr. Kristen Holly turner I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Dr. Kristen Holly turner is a professor of education at Drew University, and she is the director of the Drew Writing Project, which is a chapter of the National Writing Project. In this conversation, we explore the terrain of digital literacy, its links to social justice, and how teachers must fundamentally reimagine what our essential job descriptions are if we're going to meet the needs of the learners in our classrooms. As we're both parents, Kristen and I also get into our roles with our children and what can be done at home to augment and reinforce critical digital literacy to help our young people thrive. I think you'll find yourself nodding along in agreement as you listen to Dr. Holly Turner explain her work and thinking in this conversation that I am so delighted to share with you. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Kristen Holly Turner. Kristen Holly turner you are a really big deal in the world of digital literacy, so I'm going to do my very best to keep my nerdy fangirling at a minimum, but welcome to the Teaching Tomorrow podcast. Thanks for having me. So you and your longtime collaborator, Troy Hicks, have written, if English teachers are committed to teaching for social justice, then they must also be committed to teaching digital writing and the skills that support literacy in multimodal contexts. How is digital literacy an issue of social justice? So I would
1: say that literacy has always been an issue of social justice. We know that children who have literacy-rich homes, meaning they have lots of books, they have parents who are reading with them, who are talking with them about literacy practices, who are kind of introducing the world of reading and writing to them before they even go to school are much more successful once they reach school and they actually have a huge jump up. And so the question of the divide between literacy-rich homes um, of children who have access to books and parents who can read to them and children who don't has been something that's been important in the world of education for a long time. So now let's layer on the digital piece, because for the last 20 years, we have been seeing an increase in the use of digital tools to read, write, and connect. Um, And that has become literacy in a digital age, using technologies to read, write, and connect with each other. So those who have access to the technologies and have access to understanding how technologies allow us to consume, create, and connect with each other will have a leg up in society. So if social justice is about equity and action, Then digital literacy is now about equity and action to make sure that everybody has not just access to the technologies, because we actually have made a lot of progress in that, particularly with the pandemic recently, um, but access to the understandings of how we use these tools to read, write, or consume, create.
0: I mean, that's huge. You're touching on a lot of points here, but I want to loop in your role as a teacher educator, because you work in the Faculty of Education, and- do you find it's difficult to get teachers or pre-service teachers, people who are coming into the profession to understand that it's an issue of social justice or is it really easy and clear for them to see that?
1: There is nothing easier, clear <laughs> about talking about issues of social justice. I Fair remember point. In, my, in my first- um, my first professor role at uh, where we I was at Fordham university is where I started my career. And one of the first things we did as a faculty was sit down and try to define that term social justice mm. together. Oh. Um, and it was such an interesting endeavor. We actually wrote about this process and, and how, everyone kind of has a different understanding. But what I took away from that conversation is that social justice isn't just about equity. And I think a lot of people kind of stop with that layer. But social justice has this layer of, I'll say action, some people might say activism, that we are working to achieve equity or access or or whatever it is. So yeah, trying to help teachers or pre service teachers to particularly those who might not have ever faced these questions before in their lives, to consider and talk about these things is is not easy. Because of that I have um, work I have actually because now I'm in charge of the teacher education program I've been able to recruit faculty and staff and teachers and field supervisors who all kind of share this understanding, and we built our program on this so Even if you don't have that mindset coming into our program, it's an expectation that you'll get there and you'll challenge yourself and you'll work hard. So we have hard conversations from day one. And actually, we build community agreements that allow us to have these hard conversations across courses in the program. But this is an intentional choice of the faculty in my program,
0: and it's definitely not easy. And you're hitting at something that you've written about in some of your work, which is it's not just about teachers being able to do this. It's a whole system within the ecosystem of a school. You know, you alluded to family literacy and what's going on at home, but it's also administrators and schools who actually get that promoting digital literacy within a program and authentic digital literacy, like you say, it doesn't happen just because one teacher gets it. It's like a whole network of things that have to be at play.
1: Right, and it's actually about the reconceptualizing of what literacy is. Yes. So it's it's not technology in the classroom. Mm-hmm. We kind of I've joked for many years about the ten thousand dollar pencil. Right. This yeah. is some, this is a joke that kind of goes through through the ed tech world. Like, don't just put the technology in and assume that everything's going to change. Moving from print based text to digital text is not an easy shift. It's not just that you transfer the skills that you've been learning in print based literacy to digital text. Digital texts actually require something different. And so we have to teach those uh, skills intentionally. And it's not just about putting technology in the classroom to do that. It's about understanding what are the skills that you need to communicate, to consume, create, connect, collaborate, all of the skills of digital literacy in this digital world. And how do we teach them alongside? print-based texts. That's kind of the, the sticking point because lots of times schools, which operate a little bit like the Titanic, they just don't turn fast enough. They just are like, oh, we can get the tech. But then supporting teacher understanding and student practice to actually use that technology in authentic digital literacy ways is, it's difficult.
0: When I was reading some of your writing, I you never referenced this, but i I just kept thinking about the SAMR method. I don't know, like the there's different steps on it, and I'll probably get them wrong. But basically, like the lowest level is substitution. So, you know, you use something that directly substitutes what you might use in an analog. But then when we get to like the higher levels of this model, it's actually reimagining a task that could never be done previous. And like, I think that that, takes a lot of cognitive energy for teachers for schools like you said it's a titanic to pivot but like you've written many times this cannot wait like you you wrote an article i think it was in 2013 saying digital literacy can't wait and then 10 years later you're like hey everybody it still can't wait and we're still not quite doing enough about it um it's a fantastic both of them are really strong pieces and i'll link them in the show notes And I really appreciate that in some of the conversations I've listened to with you, you openly acknowledge the fatigue and overwhelm that teachers are experiencing, not only with the pandemic, but also with high-stakes testing and outside pressures to catch up. I would love to hear something that causes you to have hope, like something that you see in your vantage point as a leader in the field of education, that you see that actually lets you know that, okay, something is working, we're moving in the right direction. But then also, I would love to hear something that still gives you concern. So the hope actually is interesting, because you said it, it can't just be
1: one teacher who's doing this, right? But that's actually where my hope lies. So mm. I'm I am the director of the Drew Writing Project and Digital Literacies Collaborative, which is the site of a national writing project. And the writing project is almost 50 years old. It's the longest standing professional development organization in the United States. And it's a network of sites that bring individual teachers together to transform their practice. And through that transformation, they go back into their schools and influence others. Right. So so that idea that it's not just one teacher, but one teacher actually. can make a difference in shifting the Titanic right in chain making change in their school Uh, that's what gives me hope and I see those teachers everywhere I work with them all the time I have teachers coming to me uh, who say I want to try something can you talk can we talk through this Uh, can we think about how I can connect with a community in Spain and have my students write together I'm thinking of one teacher that I'm working with now so What gives me hope is that there is recognition that something has to shift and that we're already behind the eight ball in this and there are teachers doing amazing things in their classrooms. The second thing that gives me hope is the schools that allow those teachers to do that, allow those teachers to push the boundaries because the schools then, the systems will learn from them. The ecosystem, as you said, will change. What concerns me is we had this amazing opportunity with the pandemic to really change things up. And what I have seen as people have come back off of Zoom into their classrooms is a return to very didactic teacher-centered practice because there seems to be a fear that we lost so much, the Mm -hmm. learning loss, we have to catch the kids up. Our students, maybe on tests are not where they would have been had they been in classrooms but they learned a lot during the pandemic and a lot of them actually learned a lot about communicating using technologies so my fear is that we missed a moment to actually make the shift that we should have made about 15 years ago
0: um,
1: and that we have really reverted back and we're not actually capitalizing on everything we could have learned during the pandemic
0: Tell me your thoughts more on learning loss. I really struggle with that rhetoric because I I feel like, what have we lost? Like, this isn't a race. We're not, you know, all trying to get to the same final destination. How are you talking about this in your circles? Uh, So we
1: talk a lot about assessment and instruction. We go back to the basics of teaching that... We have to assess students where they are and then instruct them to the next level. That's Vygotsky scaffolding, right? <laughs> if they're here and we want them to be here, then we need to work the scaffold to get them where we want them to be. And they don't need to be a certain place by a certain time. They never have. And so that's been the problem with high-stakes standardized testing for 20 years. And it's been interesting to kind of watch the high-stakes standardized testing paralleling this digital literacies practices that are happening in the real world because you can't actually test what is happening in authentic life. Mm. (laughs) And so there was such, there's been such a big disconnect there. And so if what we're looking at is learning loss on these standardized tests, if that's the only measure we're using, then we're not actually thinking about our students prepared for the real world after high school, after college, you know, after whatever, And so when I, when I work with teachers or schools, that's what we talk about. Like, what, what does it mean to have lost something if we're just looking at where are we now and where do we want to go next?
0: Hmm. That's such a good point. If I were to give you a magical wand and you could do whatever you wanted in the field of education with this wand, bags of money, completely reimagine things, hit reset, like if you had the wand and anything was possible, like what would be the first thing that you would do? Well, can I just start with one school?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. I actually have this fantasy. <laughs> I love this. Yes, yes, yes. I, dri- I drive by this building that has a for lease sign, and it looks kind of like a, a small little school building, but not like a traditional school. You know, it looks like it'd be a fun school to attend. And I'm like, what if I were in charge of that school? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. would I do? What right? would you and do? What, what would I do? And the first thing I would do is hire teachers who see beyond the walls of their classroom. And to see beyond the walls of your classroom, you actually, in my opinion, need to kind of let grades go. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think that grades are the motivator, that this external carrot and stick is what motivates students to learn. It's not. It motivates them to get the grade. So what if we flip that on its head and say, what motivates students to actually learn? What helps them to drive their learning? How do we make this authentic in a way that they want to come to school, that they want to follow their interests, follow their passions? So this is where I draw on the work of the Connected Learning Network, um, thinking about what students do in their real lives. And so I have a great example of a connected learner in my own home. My 15-year-old daughter has always had facility with technology. I don't know if it's just because I allowed her to play when she was young or if her mind just works this way. But she, for a long time, has been exploring creation in an interesting way uh, using technology. So it started with an art-based YouTube channel, which kind of she did more and more during the pandemic when she was at home and had a lot of time on her hands. And then it turned into she's now a singer-songwriter who writes and produces her own songs and does all of the back-end production on her own. And she has now put herself out into the world But she's learned all of this, not from me, because I don't have those skills, but by finding mentors in the real world, learning on YouTube, understanding the algorithm and getting around the algorithm to find the things that she needs. And that passion has driven her in a way that is probably gonna propel her into college and beyond now, right? So that's an example of what youth might do if allowed to follow their own passions. She is one of the best writers that I know. Like her ability to put words on paper, amazing. She doesn't fit into the box of school very well though, right? So I always ask, what if? What if school allowed for that independent drive, that interest to lead the learning? And then teachers are there to help find mentors, but also then to help say, hey, you're doing these things in these spaces. Let's look at what you're doing and how you might do that better and get to the next level, whatever, whatever that level level is. So my school would probably not have grades <laughs> or you know some kind of assessment system that's truly about assessment and growth. And it would have teachers who are looking outside the walls of their classroom and really outside of themselves as the experts and more as the lead learner and facilitator of learning. I think that would be my first step. And then of
0: course, my school would have great Wi-Fi. <laughs> Flawless <laughs> Wi-Fi that Flawless is the bedrock. <laughs> yes. I think I mean you're you're putting together so many pieces because I fundamentally have been grappling with the shift that teachers need to make in the way that we see our roles in the classroom and the way that we see our profession and what you're describing is fundamentally reimagining the work of teachers like the the role of teachers and I think you know I taught for the first time Teacher candidates this year in an intermediate senior level methods course for English. Best thing I've ever done professionally, like, such a treat to teach grad students. But we were grappling with this idea of how we see ourselves in this classroom. And many people really wanted to get into teaching for this, like, traditional model that you were describing before and many people are very energized and excited about teacher as facilitator or teacher as connector or teacher as the enabler of creativity the enabler of students passions but it's really tricky to like get in there and to challenge what we see as the role of teaching do you see that possible to break down in teachers college or is it does it need to start earlier
1: So two things that I do with my teacher candidates. Um, The first is I try to shift their mindset as that they are knowledge givers Mm. to allowing the students to be knowledge producers. So what happens if every time I walk into that classroom, I do not know what's going to happen? I do not know what knowledge we're going to produce that day. I'm not talking about classroom management or lesson planning, right? Lesson planning or having objectives for the day. I think all of those things are important, but if I don't actually know the path we're going to take and my students and I are taking that path together, then it's true inquiry. That's really hard to do with the way most school curricula are written to be honest with you and the way that standards are written because they're written a lot of times as knowledge, like students will learn The civil war or you know whatever it is so really pushing back on the students must learn this to the students can produce knowledge on their own they can add something to the conversation so that's the first thing the second thing i do is anytime a teacher or a teacher candidate says to me i must do or i cannot do i say why even if i agree with Mm -hmm. that I ask the question why, and I can't tell you how many times people just stop and then they say, huh? Or sometimes I phrase it as why not, right? Why not? Huh, right? And so just kind of pausing to really think about why we're doing the things that we're doing. Is it that this is the way we were taught and therefore that's what we think teaching is? Is it because somebody handed me something and said, you must do this? And I just didn't think to ask why, mm-hmm. or somebody said, well, that's not possible, and I didn't think to ask why not. (laughs) Um, So just that kind of reflective questioning to really question who we are as teachers is something that is important in the work that I do across
0: the board. And I hope that teachers have that kind of gentle nudging when they enter the profession, because I think it's one thing to do it when they're a teacher candidate and, you know, everything is possible. And I, like, if I had a magic wand, I feel like, It would be something around like once you actually get into the classroom and you start actually in the muck of it all, you actually also have some kind of connection with somebody who's asking those kinds of questions, like whether it's a really good principal or a lead teacher at your school, or there's some kind of internship model, because that kind of question in your third year of teaching is so different than that kind of a question before you've even developed those habits.
1: You're absolutely right. And that goes to the ecosystem. So right now, schools are very much a hierarchy. Where you have administrators and then teachers and then students. That hierarchy is part of the problem. Yeah. So administrators often don't become lead learners because they are disciplinarians or mm-hmm. boss managers, right? Um, so I wonder how schools could change if the administrators were lead learners mm-hmm. alongside the teachers who are lead learners alongside the students, you know, and I just, I think that ecosystem and I think the best schools, the uh, building
0: administrators, the building leaders actually are lead learners. It's very rare. And I think that it requires a different mindset, but when I've seen somebody who is a vice principal that also teaches a section of something, the energy and the conversations change, like the way that we understand that profession shifts dramatically. Right.
1: And then just to take this back to digital literacies, if we can reimagine who we are in the schools, then we can reimagine what has to get taught, and really start looking at how do we build skills in our students to go into a world that's going to change before they even get there. Yeah, you know, and that's that's really what digital literacy is about the the flexibility to understand how to break down texts, how to create texts, how to find mentors, how to communicate well with people, um, how to build a network. You know, all of those things are kind of fundamental skills do we know the exact tools that are going to be useful tomorrow? No, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, you know, we, we can kind of understand flexibility, adaptation, collaboration, like all of these things are needed. And to, I always talk about being device agnostic or tool agnostic. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's important in schools and, and just think about how a school is set up. Students are going to get really good at one tool, Google classroom. Canvas, you know, whatever the LMS system is, and they're either gonna love it or hate it. You know, I, I hear this from my own students and my own children. But honestly, they need to be able to like move back and forth among tools because they're not gonna have that tool necessarily in the job market or wherever they go to college or or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So mm-hmm. the playing around and experimenting and allowing failure and tools to fail, you know, these are all things that the lead learner in the building can allow for. Um, And so often it just, it isn't allowed for.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so curious hearing you speak, who are you as a young person going through the school system? Like, did you have the ability to experiment the way that you describe your children being able to? And I know, you know, like I went through high school in the nineties. So like the tools were different for me than they were then. But I, I think like what you're saying, like the kinds of skills and the kinds of ways that you can play, did you have that ability as a young person in school?
1: Well, I didn't have it in school, but my children don't either, to be honest with you. Mm. So I don't think their their experience is much different than mine. They have more access to technology. I mean, I grew up in a very rural area in central Pennsylvania. And we had, I remember, we had a computer lab where we went for typing class. Um <laughs> And my mom actually wrote a letter to get me out of typing class because I was working on it at home. And she's like, she doesn't need to spend her school. So that was my big technology, right? (laughs) um, You know, my parents, my parents actually, they invested. We didn't have a lot of extra money, but they invested in that computer at home Mm -hmm. so that because they saw it coming. They saw it coming in their workplace and they wanted my brother and me to have access. And so they made that a priority. And that's kind of what I'm going back to talking about literacy rich homes, you know, like, and then they said, okay, you can use do other things in school because you're doing these things at home. But, you know, as a student in high school, I was very much focused. I think the way a lot of students are like, I need to get good grades and get into a good college so that I get a good job. And I kind of knew I was going to be a teacher from a very long time. So I had that pass going for me. What I didn't necessarily have besides that very
0: early computer. um, Was it a Commodore 64? What was this very early computer? Was it an Atari, an Apple? I feel like that's important. It was not
1: an Apple, um, but I can't remember the name of it. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is one that like I could go back and ask my mom and she would be able to, like oh it was this but I can't remember what I do remember is it allowed me to type my papers rather than mm-hmm. handwrite them on the yellow tablet paper um, and that allowed me to revise a little bit more and then there were some games that we played on that computer yes. but it, it didn't when I was in school it didn't connect out of our house there was no, no. internet right so that's what my own children have and and students, youth of today have that I did not have. I actually don't think school has changed all that much. Although I think since the pandemic, a lot more is paperless, right? So teachers have figured out how to go paperless um, and give comments back and forth on a Google Doc or whatever it is. But outside of school, youth have so much more access to other mentors to ways to learn, also to things that can be harmful to them, you know, and we do know that there are negative effects of social media and things like that. So, you know, these are all things that we have to think about in terms of digital literacy and understanding what are the impacts of my practices and what I'm doing in digital spaces on my health, my well-being, the people around me, all of that. So I think in a lot of ways they have a lot more things they could do but they also have more challenges to face because of that
0: so at what point in your career do you realize that you need to be studying deeply digital literacies like is it when you're a classroom teacher is it you know when you're signing up for a phd program like at what point are you like this is what i'm going to commit my life to so i
1: became a teacher well i i loved history but I got my best grades in English because I was a good writer. And so I went to college deciding to be both, right? I double majored and I got double certified in history and English, but I got my job as an English teacher. My brother was five years younger than me. So even though I did not have internet in high school, he did, Uh which overlapped with my college. So I got internet in college, right? I started using the internet for research in college, But he also, he ended up becoming a computer science engineer. So he had that kind of like interest technology. So we were talking across these kind of two spaces. And when I started teaching, I started playing with the technologies that he was using because my students were about his age. (laughs) And so he would talk about things like AIM. And then I'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh, I am or my students would come in and talk about my space and I'd say, what's my space? And so I had this inquisitive mindset that I could learn from them. um, And I trusted it, I think, because I had this younger brother who I was watching develop as well. And he was also helping me. I said, I remember writing to him. I'm like, could you build me some kind of database that lets parents know what the homework assignment is? Oh, and so cool. he did. So I had that all before anybody else so did. So early, yeah. So early, right? Um, and I, I remember getting an online, I bought an online grade book And introduced it to my school because I was like now parents will know you know and they'll know how their students are doing you know now it's like yeah the opposite end (laughs) oh my gosh I know way too much about what's going on in school through the online gradebook so anyway I would play as a teacher because it made sense to me if these were the things my students were doing outside of school I should know about them number one they I was curious about them but then I was also thinking well how might this number one engage them more not to appropriate because that has become a problem too, you know, that teachers appropriate their out of school literacies. And then it's like, "Ah, I don't want to do that in school. Mm -hmm. Um, But to say this, I want to honor this in some way. And if it's easier for you to have a chat about the book on instant messenger at night, than to get together or to do it in the classroom, then let's do AIM book clubs. Right. So then I was really focused on the teaching of writing at the time. And when I went to my PhD program, I was I wanted to be a better teacher of writer. And that's how I got involved in the National Writing Project. But as I started doing research, and again, we're talking about the mid-aughts, right? Mm-hmm. Things were changing rapidly. And so then writing became something different. And language became different. You know, we have what I call DigiTalk. Um, it started out as text speak, but then it's like crossing more than just texting language. And I was really interested in that. And that kind of launched me into this world of digital literacies. And I just kept following the path of how do we create great writers who can share their voices, mm-hmm. which then leads into how do we create analytical readers who can produce great writing? And, you know, then we're into all forms of
0: digital literacy. So that was my pass. Just hearing you speak about the power of having playfulness and like a sandbox to experiment with different things and to be curious about what your young people are up to and how that might shape the way that you're teaching and including things into the classroom. I feel like regardless of anybody's disposition, those are really important kernels to take away. And I hope that everybody can have that space to be playful in their teaching too.
1: Yeah. And I, I will admit that I had a lot of freedom. They trusted me, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also was intentional about my playfulness and I was reflective about it. And I made a case for it. Yeah. um, That, that worked.
0: Yeah. You were a researcher. You
1: were a teacher researcher. yeah, Yeah. Kind of. But I also listened to the students a lot and got feedback from them and you know, kind of incorporated things as they needed and wanted. So I think that's an important piece of it.
0: I want to go back to something that's come up a few times in this conversation around literacy rich homes. Um, I'm a parent of a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and I've, you know, really, since the pandemic, have really reconceptualized the way that I see my role as a parent. I think I had this naive idea that you send your children to school, they come home and they know how to do like reading and writing, for example. And the pandemic really changed that for me. I'm like, oh no, I really will need to really scaffold and support reading instruction. Like not just having books around and reading at night, but I'm going to have to teach you how sounds work and how we blend sounds together. And now I've been really thinking about how my role as a parent will need to change around digital literacy because I don't entirely, I mean, this says a lot about the public school system, but I don't entirely trust that they will teach my child how to be a critical consumer. And we're at that kind of cusp where he wants to play video games. He wants Minecraft. He knows what it is, but we don't really let it. He's interested. I feel like there needs to be and I've done zero research on this, but I feel like there needs to be more around the role of parents in digital literacy, the way that, you know, maybe 50 years ago, there was a huge push around families helping children become better readers. Maybe it's a magic wand question, but what do you hope parents can do for their young people to help support the work that's going on in schools? Because it can't, just rest on teachers. It can't just rest on schools. This is a societal shift that we're seeing. So what do you think parents can be doing to support digital literacy in young people? So we're in this interesting space
1: where most people who are parents have not grown up with these devices in their hands, right? We've come to them as teenagers or adults or some some older version of ourselves, unlike my children who were born the same year as the iPhone. Um, I have twins. I know that's weird whenever I talk about them. So just make that <laughs> clear, <laughs> my twins were born the same year as the iPhone. So they have never known a world without a device in your hand that connect, can connect you to anyone, anywhere, and get you any kind of information you want on the spot. It will be interesting, and I think the question you're asking is going to be different when my kids are parents than the current generation of parents. So the reason that I bring that up is the first step For parents is acknowledging what you do and do not know about it. And I think this is the case for everything. So many adults have such bad habits with their phones. And there's a lot of research, uh, the Children and Screens Institute does a lot of research on on the effects on children and um, parenting and things like that. We, I actually was involved in the ScreenTime.me project, which is about parenting. We have a couple of articles and a podcast series about these questions, right? Like, what do I do as a parent who maybe doesn't know these things? And really, what I've come down to understanding is the devices in our hands are really powerful things, but we are also the model for our children. So if we are just aimlessly scrolling on our device all the time, that's what they're going to see. And that's what the practice is going to be for them. If we are talking through with them, I'm not just aimlessly scrolling here. I'm actually checking my email because I'm looking for, you know, somebody was supposed to email me information that I need. And that's why I'm on my phone now. Oh, I found the information and now let me put down the phone, right? So being intentional about our own practices is the first hurdle because most of us are not as adults. And then articulating what we are doing because all the children are seeing is your face in the phone right? That's all they see. They don't see what's going on in your head. If there is anything going on in your head and you're not just (laughs) aimlessly scrolling. Fair Um, point. So I think, and that's, that's very similar to reading a bedtime story. Um, most parents, when they read a bedtime story are talking, Oh, look at this picture. You know, they're talking around the words. It's not just doing the bedtime story. So first step, understanding what your own practices are and what you do and do not know about yourself and also about this world that's out there. The second thing is that the kids are actually probably going to learn more than you ever could and bring it back to you. Mm. So having open conversation, um, you know, TikTok, for instance, I'm not on TikTok. I don't know what TikTok is, but my kids and teenagers are all over it. My kids are not, but teenagers are all over it and they learn from their peers brings it back to me and i ask important questions about safety privacy algorithms what are you doing with your time i think that piece about what are you doing with your time is the one that parents can think about most so you mentioned video games right like that can that can become a rabbit hole mm-hmm. but it can also be great like minecraft is great you've got if your children are building with you or with their peers um They're actually communicating, collaborating, they're doing things to construct and create. So those are good skills. It's not just going down a rabbit hole of mindlessly playing a video game where you're not actually engaged in these critical skills. At the same time, you shouldn't be doing anything forever. (laughs) <laughs> right? You want to you like say, oh yeah, I've done, I've been, I've been doing Minecraft. I've budgeted an hour for this, you know, now I'm at hour three, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's problematic. So a lot of that is just the self-regulation skills that I think parents always need to help their children with. Mm-hmm. But when you throw in devices that can be uh, attention grabbing and not necessarily leading you down a path that's helping you develop as a person, then parents can step in and say, Let's have a conversation about this, yeah. um, and this can lead into rules, right, or guidelines. And there, there's lots of work on that. Um, but I, I would say that not a, not all screen use is bad, but not all screen use is created equal
0: either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of what I hear you say is around being connected to your young people, being curious about what they're doing, and needing to have guardrails, and and being mindful of our own role in that, and how that plays. There's a lot of wisdom in there. I, As we're kind of like embarking on this journey in our own family, I feel like those are going to be ringing true to me for a long time. Um, I want to hear more about the Digital Literacies Collaborative. You know, I sort of said casually, like, I wish that there was a space where teachers who are in the practice can be having these questions. Is that what this offers to some teachers? Tell me more about it. How is it connected to National Writing Project? The Digital Literacies Collaborative is a professional orga- development
1: organization that I started uh, when I was not running a National Writing Project network site. and But it's based on the same kind of idea. So the National Writing Project focuses on writing, literacy, uh, digital writing. They're very progressive in terms of understanding that writing has changed and continues to change. But what the Digital Literacies Collaborative did was look kind of at literacies a little bit more broadly and how we can play, experiment, and also work around the system to do these things in our own classrooms. So with the same mindset as the NWP, which is that teachers of writing must be writers themselves, the DLC says that teachers who are teaching digital literacies must engage in their own literacies practices, and they must experiment and play and learn and have that mindset to fail and grow and learn alongside their students. So we have done for. I guess we started this in twenty. 23- oh my gosh, we're ten years old! I just realized that. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we started by um, we call it the the OG group, the first group <laughs> that came together and started reading. Um, I remember we read uh, Will Richardson's blogs, wikis, podcasts, and other web 2.0 tools, you know, Mm -hmm. web 2.0 is an old term at this point. But, you know, we were thinking about how do we bring some of these tools in. And then we read once a month, we were reading another article or another book together and practicing whatever our context was, we would take something back to our classroom and then come back together to talk about it. And then the next year, we invited a couple more people to join us. And it's kind of grown. So when I started the National Writing Project site at my current university, which is Drew University, um, I had the opportunity to say the DLC has been doing this work and teachers can earn this credential of expertise, right? A badge, micro-credential, to say they've gone through this teacher inquiry, uh, they present publicly, and they have some kind of uh, deeper expertise in digital literacies. That connects to National Writing Project. The National Writing Project was looking at a different way. Normally, you would go through a summer institute uh, to become a National Writing Project teacher consultant, which is a credential. But they were looking at other ways that teachers could come into the National Writing Project. And I was like, well, I kind of have one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So would this work? And so we kind of married the two. So it's the Drew Writing Project and Digital Literacies Collaborative. So The DLC runs workshops year round. So the teachers present their work on integrating technology, on developing digital literacies through online workshops and everything is done virtually for the Mm -hmm. DLC. And then the DWP arm of it is engaged with that work I mean there's very little that technology doesn't touch anymore in the classroom right but the DWP maybe takes a more focused role uh, look at writing in particular in how we're teaching writing uh, so some teachers kind of come in through the DLC some come in through the DWP but then we kind of land them together and so we're having conversations all the time the great thing was because we'd been doing this already when the pandemic hit, we were ready to go with professional learning, With um, we knew how to connect with each other, to support each other through that crazy time. And now more and more professional learning is being done online. But yeah, this is just a space where teachers can kind of come together and talk about these, these things, but then also earn credentials and
0: share their practice with others. Mm, it's like a sandbox, but with you know, some kind of certification process involved. Like it's a, uh, sort of, yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I want to be a teacher around you and come be a teacher in that space. That sounds like, well, you perfect. totally can because the DLC is all online. So <laughs> ah, maybe I'll come and like sneak in on some things. If you'd be okay with that, I would uh, sure. absolutely love that. At the end of every episode, we always do a ticket out the door, which is just random questions to which you cannot prepare. Are you ready for a rapid fire round? I don't know. Am I ready? I think I'm ready. <laughs> I hope you're ready. But it's fun and lighthearted, so you okay. know we can redo and clean up anything in editing if you want to take your time with it. Okay. First question is something you are grateful for right now.
1: I am so grateful for my family, um, my kids in particular, who are just growing and amazing me every day. And I am grateful that they have not yet gone off to college, and I get mm. them for two more years. Oh, I love that.
0: What's the most recent TV show you binged and loved?
1: I'm not a huge TV. You know what? I just binged um, Next Level Chef,
0: which is a Gordon
1: Ramsay. I've never watched any Gordon Ramsay shows, but I saw a local, you know, the patch is like a local, you know news online newspaper and i saw an advertisement that a new jersey teacher was going to be on next level chef Ah. and i'm like oh i'll check that out and then i got hooked on it and i binged the whole the whole series the first season
0: that's so delicious i love that (laughs) uh speaking of food pie or cake cake but only if it's vanilla with vanilla (laughs) (laughs) that's yes i love that answer beach or mountains mountains spring or fall spring What is either the best or the worst advice you
1: have ever received? The best advice was to always clean up the party the night
0: of, not the next morning. There's a metaphor in there. I love that. Uh, The last question that I ask every guest is, you know, you can come at it from any angle, but what do you think is the future of learning? The future
1: of learning is individualized, not in the way that is algorithm-based, so it's not the personalized learning that we hear about, but that is personalized learning in the way that connected learning is personalized learning, so that learners, no matter their age, are able to explore, find, identify, discard their interests, and become contributing members of communities
0: of practice mm, that's a great final answer thank you so much for being on the podcast this is such a delight and I've learned so much in this talk thank you it's been great talking with you a lot of fun a deep bow of gratitude to Dr. Kristen Holly Turner for being on the show I learned so much and I feel like I have another friend in the sphere of digital literacy that I can connect to If this series on digital literacy is speaking to you, I'm asking you to do one of three things. The first is to follow the podcast on Instagram. It's where the after party is, while also the pre-party and the in-between party. You can join in at teaching underscore tomorrow and comment on what you thought about the episode and get to know more of the behind the scenes of the podcast. The second is to rate and review the show. This will take about 10 to 15 seconds, and it makes a huge difference in helping other people find the show. Finally, if you haven't done so already, hit the subscribe button or follow button so that when new episodes come out, and with this season, they're coming out about every two weeks, you won't miss an episode. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep reimagining what is possible. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.